Hello and welcome to the Oz Investing Podcast, the podcast for the everyday investor. Just a quick note before we begin today's podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be considered as personal financial advice. If you're ever in doubt about your financial situation, please reach out to a qualified financial advisor. With all that said and done, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Oz Investing Podcast. My name is Sam and with me as always is my buddy Jude. How are you, Jude? Doing well, mate. How are you? Very well, thanks. I'm extremely excited today because we have with us our very first guest onto the podcast. We welcome John Palmer from the Invest for the Future YouTube channel. John uses his channel as a platform to share his experience, thoughts and strategies as a long-term investor in the Aussie stock market. Um, personally, I'm a huge fan uh, of his content, right? Because and he always backs up whatever his videos and contents are with data. He absolutely loves Excel sheets and uh, Stock Doctor. Personally, John's channel has been instrumental in my ASX st- stock market learning. When I moved here in Australia, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about the ASX. And I happened to stumble upon his channel and have been a huge fan and subscriber ever since. So welcome to the show, John. And, you know, please tell us, tell the audience a bit about yourself, please. Well, hello, Sam and Jude. It's good to be here. And also, thanks so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, look, I think I'm just a little bit older than both of you. So I guess <laughs> I've had a lot more opportunities to learn from my mistakes. And I guess we might talk about that a little bit later in the show. But anyway, look, I'm fast approaching 70. I've got my 70th birthday next month. And I've spent 45 years as a teacher, mainly teaching mathematics, but just a little bit of everything else as well. But I never really expected it to be that way, but I did enjoy my job. I I did actually try to move out of teaching probably 25 years ago, but that didn't work out. So I went back to it and sort of stayed there till the end. So I'm married with a wife. I've got two children, four grandchildren. I manage my self-managed super funds since the mid-1990s. I play guitar, I love golf and fishing, and I've been sharing, as you said, my investing journey on my YouTube channel now since the late 2018. So that's a brief summary of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Awesome story there, John. Lots to unpack. So I guess just starting out, though, you've been investing, obviously, for a very long time. What kind of kick-started your interest in investing? Uh, what, what did you start out investing in? Well, it sort of started for me, I guess, when I was at university in the late 60s. And that was actually in the middle of the Poseidon nickel boom, which is probably before your time. Yeah, um, haven't <laughs> haven't heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of us oldies will remember that where the price of nickel just shot through the roof and awesome fortunes were made. But then also in some cases lost if you bought at the, at the top of the market. But uh, so, you know, I was guilty of uh, some of the common sins that, that uh, naive young investors have. It was a case of all my friends around me seemed to be making money out of the stock market. So I just sort of randomly threw some darts at the market, bought a couple of oil stocks, knowing absolutely nothing about them and just hoped that sort of I'd get lucky, I guess. But luckily, no Bitcoin, John. Uh, No Bitcoin then, no, (laughs) no. Uh, (laughs) But it was all about uh, the mining exploration space, really. Uh, And as I said, nickel was the the boom commodity at the time. 
but yeah, but then I sort of once I started working, I bought an investment property because I really thought that would be something sensible to do. But apart from making sort of contributions into a retail super fund, I didn't really make any other investments until we started our SMSF in the 90s. So sort of along the way, we had to sell the unit to help finance the purchase of our home. And that's sort of a story in itself about, you know, buying something beyond what you can really afford and then having to sell something that you didn't really want to sell, but you just had to. So, you know, that's that's a, that's a story in itself, but that would take quite a long time to go through. <laughs> but anyway, after, look, I had a bad experience with that retail super fund and, yeah, the funds were held up you know, with, well, what do you call it, frozen, I guess, yeah, for quite a period of time. And so once I got that back, I opted for the SMSF because I just wanted to be in control of all the decisions, I guess. Oh, that's that's so true, JP. I think in a way, you know, control, as you mentioned, comes with the ability, firstly, to try and understand what you're invested in, right? Yeah. And if you are the type of uh, investor who would like to be a little bit more hands-on, then it ain't a bad approach as long as you ha- stick to a plan that really works for you. So I think that that kind of worked for you in terms of when it came to having more control in your, you know, your SMS, uh, SMSF uh, yes, fund. Yes. Yeah. So that's pretty good. So, so JP, coming to the next element, I just wanted to ask you, what was the trigger moment where you decided to share your experiences with a wider audience through your channel? I'm sure there is a backstory behind that. Yeah, a little bit of one, I guess. I mean, I actually don't know the date, uh, so it wasn't like a specific date. It's probably towards the end of, of uh, 2018, say perhaps around about October or so. I used to watch a lot of YouTube clips mainly about um uh, how to play guitar, which is sort of one of my hobbies, and uh, for oh, some fantastic. reason, up on the, the yeah, up on the feed, a couple of young Aussies, <laughs> their videos came up, and I thought, well, I just wonder what these guys are on about. <laughs> um, I didn't even know that YouTube had finance type videos on it. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty, plenty out there. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, but I was there just looking at. I was uh, just out of interest on it. Whether people know a, a band called Boyce Avenue. The sort of I think they're a Canadian American band that have millions and millions of views, and I love their covers. So I was watching them, but as I said, one of the uh, these in the feed came up uh, these two channels. So I just uh, watched them, and then I just thought I had enough experience, you know. Do, maybe do you remember couple, what what channels they were? Was it Brandon's channel or? Uh, yeah, Brandon and uh, Hamish Hodder. Ah uh, yes, yes. Yep. Yep, yep, um, yep. We've watched and, a lot you know, of their, their stuff. Is 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 well produced, and yep. Uh, yep. you know they both devotees of Warren Buffett's, you know, style of analysing companies and, and investing. And I think both of them, although you don't know with Brandon, they go ahead and try to work out, you know, the value of a stock, the intrinsic value, and then they put mm. in a, uh, a margin of safety and all that sort of stuff. Not, you know, not my style at the moment, but, uh, you know, if you can make it work, then why not do it? It's, uh, if you find what works for you, then stick with it. But I just sort of thought, okay, here these young lads are doing a, a good job, and I was so pleased to see they were thinking about their future. But you know, bringing, I guess, the theory to light in their in videos, but not with the background experience of all the things that might actually go wrong. Yep. And so I just thought I might be able to put something together that would be useful. And in doing so, I thought, well, I'd I'd be pretty open about my portfolio. You know, I originally just spoke about percentages of my portfolio. But then I eventually decided, well, look, 
you know, why not just put the actual values in there? You know, my view was the taxation office knows what I'm doing. So, <laughs> so why shouldn't everybody else? <laughs> it's a bit of a stupid reason, really. But anyway, <laughs> the main the main reason for doing it, to be honest, was that thought it through a bit. And then, you know, my biggest mistakes always came from not really having a proper set of investment rules. And so over the two and what two and a quarter years, I guess it is now, I've been developing my plan. And by having it up there on YouTube and saying what I'm doing sort of makes me accountable to the audience. Um, you know, if I started sort of telling a few fibs here and there and tried to fudge my performance, I'm sure they'd pick holes in it, which would be embarrassing, really. So, you know, YouTube's pretty much the force that makes me stick to my plan and makes me think twice before I go and hit that buy or sell button. And they're saying, you know, am I actually sticking to my plan or am I just actually messing around with the, uh, you know, hope and a prayer here? Yeah, that's that's awesome, John. I think it's really valuable having an experienced investor on YouTube making content. I think a lot of people don't really get that perspective. You know, there's a lot of young YouTubers, but you know they don't have the experience that you to um, that you bring. Uh, so I think yeah, your your experience and uh, knowledge definitely uh, brings a lot of light into the YouTube videos. So oh, thanks be- for that. <laughs> Very nice of you to say so. Yeah, no, well it's good. It, it's a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's brilliant. And before we move on to some of the topics for today, I'd just like to start out with maybe a fun question. So what has been your greatest investment, John, and what has been your worst investment? <laughs> Let's go to the extremes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, you know, this is probably going to be a bit boring, but I think my best investment has probably been buying our home. It's, you know, our situation is a little different to uh, now where interest rates are, you know, sub one percent on term deposits and you've got mortgages sitting at like two and a quarter or something like that yep. you know when we bought our house one stage interest rates were 17 percent so you that's know, incredible to think you about. know today people buying houses might want to think back wow <laughs> <laughs> how much would i be paying if i paid you know half a million for my house now and i've got 17 percent you've already got me thinking i'm because my wife and i were actually looking out to buy our first house and yes. now just think about it like where it goes back to 17 <laughs> percent <laughs> well it i is. don't think it ever will really <laughs> it won't for a while i don't think you. No, no. Uh, i mean I, look, there's all sorts of arguments you can make about renting and then investing the differential um, you know if you if you're disciplined enough i'm sure you can make that work you know but for us just to give you sort of some idea, we paid, believe it or not, $59,500 for our house in 1980. So, you know, about one-tenth of what it is now. That's um, incredible. Prob- probably paid back about 150000 altogether to pay it off. That would be including adding an extension and a, and a pool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're thinking of buying a house and thinking about putting a pool in, could I say don't do that? <laughs> wow, are they ever expensive to maintain and uh, I'm not sure you get the value out. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the learnings, John. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, at the time it seemed like a good idea. And look, the kids got great, great fun out of it. But wow, you know, right now we, we do have it and the grandkids swim in it. But, you know, chemicals and power to, to keep it going and whatever is is, is very expensive. So it's a, it's a luxury for sure, mm. you know. 
probably now, you know, having put in that 150,000, the house is probably worth about 550 to 600, perhaps. It's of course one of those things you never know. It depends on whether someone really wants to buy it or not. Yep. But you know, in terms of like, if we were renting it to live in, it, it's going to cost us probably 25, 30,000 a year. You know, about 500 to 550, 600 a week, perhaps, because oh, it's a pretty, pretty big good. house. Again, don't know until you put it on the market, but. Uh, I sort of look at that as being my tax-free dividend, really. Like, you know, we've got this thing capital. Um, sorry, we've got this thing owned outright. We've got capital growth of probably four hundred, four fifty thousand, perhaps over forty years. Which, you know, it's a lot of money, but over forty years is probably not the greatest of returns. But we do own our home. We don't have to pay rent. You know, there's room for the kids and the grandkids can can stay over. There's enough room for them to to sleep in, you know, bedrooms that were theirs when they were children. Pretty hard to put a value on that, really, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that that's a, it's a bit boring. But, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at the stock market particularly, probably the, the best trade that I've made, it's not a trade because I owned it for a year, but it was a company called Vita Group. And I did notice the other day, actually, that they're in all sorts of uh, strife because Telstra is going to... Re, or not renegotiate. I think they're just going to like take over the the shops. Yes. Uh, and and uh, you know I haven't read much about it, but at the time that I bought it, they pretty much had the Telstra monopoly, um, and I bought them at a dollar eighty seven, and then by it's not sheer fluke. I, I I sold them, believe it or not, at the absolute all time high, uh, within a cent. I sold them at five dollars thirty two one year later. So. That was sort of like almost tripling my money in a year. So you uh, basically you you basically timed the mar- market to perfection in that stock. <laughs> well, it's crazy, really. I mean, the decision for selling it was purely based on financials that they mm-hmm. delivered, where their revenue and their earnings had grown really, really significantly, probably like double. I, I haven't got the numbers here to actually quote, but. You know, from their previous annual report, their earnings and and revenue were massively higher than what they were, and they were a dividend-paying stock, and they didn't increase their dividend. And I go, why not? Mm. You know, what is going on? And I said, well, I've made this awesome profit, uh, and one of my filters, and I guess I'll talk about my filters a little later perhaps, at the time, one of them was that if the company was not delivering increasing dividends, then I didn't want to own it. So I just sold it uh, oh. there and then, um, and it turned out by you know no, I don't think necessarily sheer fluke, but I just happened to time it perfectly on that one. Mm. Uh, so you know I was very pleased with that result. So Vita Group was paying a dividend at the uh, time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I said I haven't got the the numbers uh, in front of me, but yeah, they I th- I, look you know I think they were paying something like a fifteen or sixteen cent dividend, and the, as I said these two important metrics of revenue and earnings, which I yeah. think support your dividends. Uh, you know, if you've got growing revenue and growing dividend, uh, growing earnings, why would you not be increasing your dividend unless there's something not quite right? Absolutely. In the yeah. business and we need to retain some cash to manage something which we're not telling you about. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah that, that might be a good clue to, to kind that's, of... Um, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy theory from JP here, but uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, 
So that was that was probably, you know, I've had a few others. I mean, I've done really well out of Fisher and Pikeel and I identified that way back when it was $4 and that's now like 30 something mm-hmm. just over seven years. But along the way, I've taken profits and in hindsight, uh, I didn't put it in as my best because I should never have sold them. I mean, it, it's a very, very high quality business and... You know, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't take profits or rebalance your portfolio, but, you know, in hindsight, that probably cost me a lot of money. Um, mm. But some of the other ones that are, you know, not such brilliant performances, I used to own a company called Forge Group. They were a mining services company. They took on too much debt and went broke totally, so I lost everything. Um, oh, wow. So it actually went to zero. Yeah, uh, and look, you know, looking at their financials, I could have got out uh, if I had followed them, but didn't follow my rules and uh, thought they would turn around. You know, one of those things like, oh, look, I'll wait for it to go and turn around to there and then I'll sell it. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the ability predict the fu- to predict the future is one that I don't have. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've lost a lot there. Slater and Gordon was almost a lot you know too much debt again they just got very very don't know about greedy but um you know went and paid a lot for a business in uh, the uk and in the end the debt and everything uh, caught up with them because they paid way too much for that business now sort of one of those crazy stories i did make a lot of money of them uh, from them when they were in their growth phase Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the end, I then basically gave most of it back when I went in and bought them again. So, you know, that was one where nearly everything went. And then there was a company called Blue Sky Alternative Investments, which was a very, very small holding. So, you know, it was like lucky to be a half a percent of my portfolio. It was sort of like a, it wasn't a speculative play, but it was based on just share price momentum, really. Mm-hmm. They went broke. But that one was to do with dodgy management and dodgy accounting practices. So, you know, not some of my finest moments, but, um, <laughs> you know, that's the good thing about investing in the stock market, really. You can have, you know, several poor decisions or management let you down. Uh, and if you get one really, really good one, then it can more than make up for the ones that uh, that you got a bit wrong. Mm, got I it. I, so I think that's... that's uh... A very good lesson there, right? And in a way that you'll never be able to pick winners all the time. There will be no. situations where, you know, some not good investments come along the way. But in a way, if you've got that right mix in your portfolio, uh, things tend to, you know, balance out in the in the future, in a way. Well, it's the, it's the overall story, isn't it? Not just the individual stock right. by stock. You're not going to get every stock right. And anyone who says they can are telling fibs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that, John. I think what we'll do uh, next, we'll kind of just divide the podcast up into three sections, um, personal finance, stocks and other investments. Uh, oh, what's the third one? I think stocks and other investments, Sam. Is oh, the okay, okay. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> that, Jude. Start, start that one again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we'll start the first topic, uh, which is personal finance. So, John, what are the basic principles when it comes to personal finance and what are some key takeaways for people listening in? Well, look, for me, I I think the key principle is really to live within your means. It's sort of, you probably hear it said a lot of times, but that means for me, don't borrow money, 
to buy things unless you absolutely have to. No, so so for us, for example, borrowing to buy a house was fine, and I, and I think anybody who borrows money to buy a house is making a wise decision, but only if you can really comfortably afford the repayments. Uh, you know, and just just quickly in our case, as I said, we everything was going well, uh, and we could afford both you know our investment property, which was negatively geared, and the house, until we decided to start a family a little bit earlier than what we'd planned, and then suddenly those repayments on the investment property and our house became unmanageable. And so we had to actually sell the investment property. So, you know, I'll just be saying, you know, think carefully about what you can afford. You know, if you're renting, then, you know, rent within your means and learn to save up for what you want would be my advice. I mean, right now, unfortunately, I think the popularity of buy now, pay later is sort of symptomatic, I think, of a growing cohort of oh no, let's call them impulse shoppers who you know eventually just become addicted to the process really uh, and I do know someone who is an, an addicted shopper and you know she likes her afterpay statement because it breaks up her three-figure purchases into two-figure amounts and it looks nice when you see oh look I haven't spent anything over a hundred dollars and sort of just the way she sees it but anyway just getting back to the point about debt, I just argue that you should only go into debt to buy assets that will actually appreciate in value. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't go into debt for things like holidays or cars or clothes or anything like that. So, you know, that, that's, I think, the, the key principle. Just live within what you can afford to, to buy. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's so true, JP. I think, you know, we always, as you rightly pointed out, you're that slogan, right? That live within your means. But, you know, what happens, life happens along the way. So when it comes to actual implementation, that lifestyle creep gets in the way, right? Yes, so yes. Therefore, therefore, I think budgeting plays such an important role to make sure that, you know, you've always accounted for things you want to spend on and, you know, uh, uh, save up for a goal. So when it comes to personal finance, while you and your wife were active in the workforce, did you all set percentages, uh, like in terms of what you guys used to follow to ensure, you know, all um, elements are covered when it comes to investments, how much percentage goes into expenses, so on and so forth? Yeah, look, look, we always ran a budget and it really became essential when we started our family and we basically went from two wages down to one. As I said earlier, you know, things were going along swimmingly, really. We were both working full time and managing uh, the investment property and our, our home. But when our daughter arrived, as I mentioned earlier, the interest rate was 17%. And so it's pretty tough to make ends meet. So we had to sell the, prop- the investment property. Mm. Uh, the mortgage rate went down pretty quickly to about 10%, but still pretty high compared to today. And so we actually just decided to pay the loan off as quickly as possible. But in terms of budgeting, like every year, we just total up our expenditure on all the essentials, so you know, electricity, water, insurance, council rates, so on, food, uh, whatever. And I used to run a spreadsheet. Oh, so um, your affinity to spreadsheets started pretty early then. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure when that particular addiction occurred, but <laughs> it's been there for a long time. But no, we'd, you know, I just get all the the, um, the bills out and look at them at the end of the year and say, OK, we spent this much on electricity. OK, let's increase that by 5%. And so we, we just increased all of our essentials by 5% in the spreadsheet. And then every fortnight when our pay was deposited into our bank account, so I would 
review the spreadsheet, look at where we were. I always knew, you know, how much money we had uh, that we could afford to spend and how much had to be there because there would be bills coming up mm. at some time in the future. So, you know, we, we even included in the spreadsheet like putting money aside for a replacement car um, when you would have to get one sometime, for even for the kids' weddings. They both eventually did get married, but we, we were putting away a little bit each fortnight knowing that some stage in the future they'd probably be hoping that we might be able to help them out with their wedding. So, you know, that, that money for, like, the replacement car and so on, we sort of like the emergency fund as well that would only get touched if there was an emergency, and fortunately there never was one. And so when the time came, I can, I can remember at one stage we had to get a new car, and mm-hmm. there was, like, more than double the amount in the car fund that oh, we actually it? needed. So it, it sort of was like my, as I said, my emergency fund. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, if there was anything left over, well, that just went into salary sacrifice. So yeah, yeah, that was Perfect. sort of pretty much how we budgeted. Perfect. Fantastic. I think it does make you feel very comfortable once you actually have that investment fund. So, yeah, you mentioned a lot of things there, how, you know, you had enough for your kids' wedding, replacement cars. I think, yeah, a lot of people are trying to, also build up that that emergency fund as well i guess before they start investing so do you have any tips for people that are trying to build up that emergency fund how how should they go about it can you highlight some of the key things that you did yeah look i'm probably you know inherently conservative i mean i do like to have a bit of a gamble but you know i'm only going to be gambling with money that i can afford to lose and I'd rather not lose anything, really, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, you know, some of your investments aren't going to go well, so you have to be prepared for that. But, look, you know, being conservative, it's probably because I was raised in a you know, lower middle-class home. Like Dad worked for General Motors Holden. Mum didn't work. She just ran the house. So we were a probably, I'd say, lower middle-class, maybe, mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. I just remember Dad bringing home his pay, bringing it home in a little brown envelope and, He'd sit down with mum and put little amounts into t- tobacco tins, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, and you know, I said, back in those days, so we're talking now, what? Oh, wow. You know, 60 years ago. So that, you know, two shillings, if you can remember pounds, shillings and pence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, two shillings in the insurance tin and one shilling in the electricity tin. And <laughs> I don't know how many tins they had there, but there were lots of these tins sitting out on the table and, then mum would get her weekly shopping money put in her purse. And I know they may have had a weekly allowance of their own, I, I don't know, but I do know they never borrowed anything to buy so, anything. So they kind of they left a good blueprint for you, right, in a way? They've already oh, set look, those I strategies. Sort of, I think it seeped into my inner being or by, you know, without me knowing, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, I, th- I think people do tend to not try to copy, but, you know, they mirror what, their experience in life has been yep. uh, and trying to change it sometimes is a bit hard so you know to answer your question I guess it does come down to living within your means and but then having an eye on how much do you think you're going to need in your later lives and as I said I, I ran the budget and I guess my advice would be to to do a budget not a not a week by week how much am I going to spend on the meat and the milk and all that sort of stuff but saying, look, okay, this year the council rates were, say, let's go round figures, $2,000. Uh, 
well, I know they're going to go up. I don't know by how much, but I'm just going to guess 5%. So I know that I need to save up $2,100 in the next 12 months to pay for next year's council rates. So mm. I'm going to have that in the back of my mind, I guess. So, you know, it comes down to living within your means, keep an eye on the future. Like if we didn't have our SMSF, I'm pretty sure we could live off the age pension. So that's that safety net. But for us, we'd just have to sell our house. We'd you know, move into something that's way smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd have to sell one of our cars. And I think we'd probably pretty much have to carefully watch what we spend our money on. You know, so, you know, if I was to sort of bring it up to a piece of advice, I'd say, you know, just learn to live off of 90% of what your take-home pay is and then the rest goes into your emergency fund or investments, if that's possible. I know for some families, I'm sorry, they're saying, you got to be kidding, John. There's no <laughs> way I could not live on all of it uh, because there are quite a lot of families that are doing it tough. I understand that. but But, you know, try to at least have some money to put away for emergencies and for investments if you can. Yep. Yep. So I was just wondering when you're going to get, you know, some of those mathematical percentages into the conversation, right? Because once a teacher, always a teacher in a way. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, as I said, it wasn't so much mathematical percentages. It was, you know, we I, I knew what my wife and my income were going to be mm-hmm. uh, for the next uh, 12 months, provided, you know, we maintained our employment and didn't get ill or, uh, or whatever. We were both in very secure employment, so we didn't think we were going to lose our jobs. But then, you know, uh, allow for, uh, and, you know, both our children went to private schools. We uh, we wanted that for them, and, mm-hmm. and they had a whole pile of, of, of things like ballet lessons and music lessons and sport and clothes and all those sorts of things. And so we just, uh, you know, worked out how much were they going to cost and then as I said put them up by five percent every year so you could say you know what was the what was the number well it was five percent really just work out what are your costs for this year Mm -hmm. um, and then budget the next year to say well I know I need to have this much in my account at these particular times and then the rest of the money some of it would go into salary sacrifice and some of it would go into investments outside of super mm-hmm. because you need to be able to get at that money. Uh, got if you've it. Got, it, got it in super, it's stuck there until you're 60 or 65, depending on whether you're going to do transition mm-hmm. to retirement or something like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. No, that's, that's pretty good. But I think that's – and coming to that point in terms of super, right, you – like it plays such an important role when, you know, you're trying to – put together a good personal finance plan, right? And I think you've hopped on in terms of your, in, in your video and your contents where, you know, uh, you've covered this topic time and time again, where you said that you're a big advocate of salary sacrifice. And yes. um, so from a personal experience, what were some of the steps you and your wife followed while salary sacrificing for super? Like, yeah, well, to share with us. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, I know there are some people who think that salary sacrifice is some sort of a scam. <laughs> it's, the, it's the government somehow or other trying to hold down wages or or they're trying to get at your money by having it in these super funds. Uh, I think they're on the wrong track. <laughs> I, you know, as you said on my videos, I think salary sacrifice is, you know, one of the most awesome opportunities available in Australia. You know, the taxation benefits are scarily good, really are. 
you know, provided you're willing to set that money aside until you retire, yep. you know, the returns will be far greater than trying to do it outside of the superstructure. But you've got to bear in mind that you're just not going to be able to access it. That's the that's the trick. And so, mm-hmm. you know, but in terms of, you know, the steps that we took, well, you know, we're, we're, we're very much family, family, really. It's uh, even now, look, you know, my son and daughter, we pretty much know all about each other's finances uh, and what's happening in our lives. And, and I consider ourselves to be like a, a little conglomerate, if you like, <laughs> where, where we're all here to try and help each other out if we can. But, you know, along the way, you know, most of our salary went towards the mortgage first mm-hmm. because the interest rates were so high. It was a case that, well, you know, if I can pay this off, I'm getting like a 10% guaranteed return on my money and then a tax a tax benefit of not having to pay tax on it uh, yep. along the way. So, you know, step one was, you know, make sure that we paid for their school fees and all their ballet lessons and the music lessons and, and so on. Mm. And then the rest went into the mortgage. So we paid our mortgage off in pretty quick time, really. And then, you know, after that, we sort of started putting some money away, a little bit of Sally sacrifice, a little bit of investment outside of super. But then once the kids finished secondary school, well, it was bang. <laughs> <laughs> Let's whack as much as we can into uh, into salary sacrifice. And so we were salary sacrificing the absolute maximum that we could. So I suppose, you know, it's, it's, you know, the very first video I put up was, you know, invest with your future, start now. Yep. yep. And I think that would be my primary, you know, key piece of advice, whatever it is you want to do, start it, you know, tomorrow, think about it tonight, work out where you want to go, uh, how much can you afford, balance it out because you've got family, you've got future commitments uh, and so on, and then have a plan, you know, and then stick with that if you can. That's great advice, John. So I know from your videos and also what you mentioned before that you have a self-managed super fund. I'm very much interested in finding out more from yourself. What was this, What was the decision behind picking the self-managed super fund instead of a traditional industry super fund? Because I know for myself, I have looked into a little bit about getting a self-managed super fund, but in the end, I've chosen to, to stick with uh, an industry super fund. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on uh, your situation? Yes, um, absolutely. Look, you know, right now, I would not be criticising anybody in any way who thought that they would go down the industry fund path. In fact, uh, I think, you know, if everything was uh, to be done again, mm-hmm. uh, I probably would do that. But for me, industry funds didn't exist uh, at the time. You know, we're talking uh, like right. in the early 70s. Um, mm. If they did, I didn't know about them. And so uh, it's a bit of a long story, really, probably <laughs> with its own separate podcast, really. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. But basically, it boils down to our retail fund that I spoke about being defrauded and our mm. balance being locked up for several years uh, while the issues were sorted out in the courts. So I, I consider myself actually lucky to get my money back out of that retail fund. And it's not that the managers of the fund did anything wrong. Mm. Uh, it's one of these you know, tricky situations where some pretty devious characters got involved and our funds were uh, used in an illegal sort of way and taken out of our 
our funds. It's a bit hard to explain quickly mm. how that happened, but uh, it scarred me a little bit. And, I can imagine it would scar most you people, know, I think, you know, having that fear that, oh, you know, I've tucked all this money away, but I can't access it now or and, and yeah. not being certain that, you know, you could access it when you well, retire. So it, We weren't even sure whether we'd even get it back mm. um, because, you know, it was basically, you know, a massive fraudulent check. I think it was about $125 million was honoured by Bank of Melbourne, I think. Um, no, it was used and it was used to pay off bills for want a better way of putting it and i'm not sure that it was anz or nab or whatever were not going to give that money back because they hadn't done anything wrong either mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a mess it really was a mess <laughs> and it went on for i'm pretty sure it went on for about three years mm. so anyway once that money came back I, I thought well i'm not going down this path again so what am i going to do with this and as it turned out one of my daughter's friends uh, parents had set up an SMSF and uh, we just had a chat with them about it. So I thought, right, I'm going to do this. And we were just told that our balance was way too low. Um, oh, you, okay. You're going to get eaten up by fees and and all that sort of stuff. And the fees were large. I mean, you know, $3,000 plus a year. But I just decided I didn't trust the system enough <laughs> to allow <laughs> others to be in charge of our money. So I knew I was, had a challenge ahead of me of what I was going to do. But, look, you know, if I was to do it again right now, you know, say I was your age now, mm-hmm. uh, I would probably go down with the industry fund. And there are some out there that would allow me to do exactly what I do, which is trade on the ASX if I want to. Correct. And if I don't want to, I can put it into one of their options, whether it be a growth option or a balanced or a, balanced option. Or a cash, whatever it is that I wanted to do. But Correct. But I just don't think they even existed back there when I – um was doing this yeah yeah i guess that's again as you rightly pointed out right the even the industry funds have or the super funds have evolved over time right and i think as and when people have got more aware with the different offerings i think they had to be more flexible and give uh, that flexibility and transfer that flexibility to end users as well right so yeah at the current moment that seems to be working for us in terms of choosing which industry fund and the flexibility within that particular fund. Yes, I think, you know, you're probably going to weigh up what are the management fees, what's the range of options that they present to you, do Mm -hmm. they have a track record of, you know, being trustworthy and delivering good returns, all those sorts of things that you'd do your homework on, yeah. This concludes Part A of Episode 6, interview with John Palmer from the Invest for the Future YouTube channel. Stay tuned for Part B of Episode 6, where we talk further about stocks and other investments.